0: invitation song this evening will be number 570 number five seven zero i have decided to follow jesus our reading tonight comes from john chapter 17 verses 20 to 23. if you'd like to follow along in your bible if you want to use the red Bibles in the back of the pew in front of you, that's on page 903, John seventeen twenty to 23. Jesus is speaking here, and he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you
1: All right, good evening. When I was younger, I often took Sunday drives with a really, really dear friend. And that friend and I spent one of those drives talking about the different churches that were in the area. While the diversity confused me at times, I felt that the love of God was enough to cover those differences. No matter the church, I saw the presence of God in every place that came together in Jesus' name. And I remember saying to that friend how great it was that God was okay with all those churches and how wonderful it was that everyone could take their own respective paths to heaven. It's been at least 10 years since that conversation. I still believe in the love of God. I still believe in the mercy of God. I still believe that people are sincere. I still believe people care about Jesus more than anything, I believe that God wants all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth, per 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4. Yet there are those who have zeal with reference to God, but not according to knowledge, Romans 10 verse 2 would say. Paul took no joy in those words being true, he had previously said, for I could almost wish myself a curse from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kin according to flesh. In Romans 9 and verse 3. That is an immeasurable love. And it's one that we ought to mirror. Note, however, that Paul clearly did not believe those people were saved in God's sight. His statement would be out of place if he did. He believed that those people were in danger. He believed that something was wrong. Despite his heart's yearning for unity with these Jews, or even disunity at his own expense, it was impossible. It was impossible because such unity would be under a false pretense. It would be a false unity. True unity would only be possible under the same kind of zeal, a zeal according to knowledge. It is true that the Jews Paul had in mind did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah. However, the principle is clear. These people were lost because they had neither believed in nor obeyed Jesus. Both aspects are important in that. We must understand that belief gives, per John John chapter 1 and verse 12, the power or the right to become children of God. But we should also know from John 3 and verse 36 that whoever does not obey the Son will not see life. Jesus cares about the truth bringing people together. We must be united in belief and obedience. Because of that, unity is not as simple as I once believed it was. In religion, unity simply cannot be feigned. It can't be faked. Neither can unity be forced. It has to be willfully aspired to. It must be founded upon the biblical standard, and it must be proven through unified obedience to that standard. Congregations of various kinds are divided by different doctrines and practices, and two very rarely answer the same question in the same way. There is love for Jesus, it seems to me, yet division on his words. There is love for the church, but division on its identity. There is love for worship, yet division on its rules. The way of Jesus is simple, however. His path, prophesied in the Old Testament and realized in the New, is still effective. More importantly, his path is still the only path to salvation, just as there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved, Acts 4 and verse 12. If we want unity, the only kind of unity with which God is pleased, then we must look to the originator and the fulfiller or the perfecter of our faith Jesus Christ. As we flip through the gospel pages, we find that unity is constantly on Jesus' mind. However, the unity that Jesus desires is a unity in what we say, do, and believe. Any religious body that claims to be the body of Christ must test themselves. They must examine if they fall in line with the kind of unity Jesus desires and demands. Appreciate with me tonight that Jesus taught, prayed, and died for unity, making him the only one who can rightfully define it. Jesus taught, prayed, and died for unity. Observe first with me that Jesus taught for unity. One of Jesus' objectives was to unite people under one religious standard. He taught for the purpose of unity. The Sermon on the Mount, for instance, was originally addressed to the great crowds that had been following Jesus, if you look back in Matthew 4 and verse 25. Despite there being all these different people with presumably different backgrounds, Jesus spoke to unite them all under a single system of kingdom living, a single system of kingdom conduct. As his sermon was wrapping up, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 25. Therefore, everyone who heeds my words and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. All of Jesus' words in this sermon, whether about anger, marriage, prayer, or otherwise, We're able to give a solid foundation for people who sought spiritual things. Followers of Christ should be united in heeding his words. Not just those in the Sermon on the Mount, but all his words, including those carried along by his apostles. John 16, 13. Here's another passage for your consideration, and this one might seem strange at first glance. Go to Matthew 23, verse 37. After sharply rebuking the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus says this as he's he's, um, speaking about Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it to death. How many times did I want to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her young together under her wings, and you did not want that? There is tragedy in Jesus' words. He has desired to save those in Jerusalem, yet they refuse to listen to him. He alluded to this a few verses earlier, actually. Spokesmen of God had often been sent to Jerusalem to their own peril, if you look back in verse 34 there. Though frustration is clear, there is also heartbreak. This is why many translations note this section as a lament over Jerusalem, However, I want you to also see the love in this lament. I want you to see the goal in Jesus' teachings, the goal in having sent countless prophets to teach them. See the reason given to Jerusalem, to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her young together. It's important for me to mention The word together is not literally found in the Greek text, but it's implied through the use of the verb that's translated as gather. It could even be rendered as collect, and it would make total sense. The force would be the same. I bring that to your attention to indicate that in a similar manner to how Jesus described uh, desire to gather the children of Israel together, he desires to gather us together. He and his teachings are the means by which unity is possible. It's the only way by which unity is possible. John 10 gives us even more to consider. Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, had called himself the door of the sheep in verse seven of John 10. And he later describes himself in verses 11 and 14 as the good shepherd. He explained that his sheep are those who will listen to his voice in verse 16. Being receptive to his voice makes all the difference. And those who are receptive are given a promise from Jesus in verse 17. Pay close attention to this. And there will be one flock, one shepherd. Friends, this is about unity. Uh, bringing people together to become the people of God. And ironically, Jesus' words in this passage, regarding, especially regarding his death and resurrection, led to a division among the Jews in, in verse 19. Some seemed to believe Jesus, but some certainly did not. Yet our point is clear from this passage and others. Jesus taught for the purpose of unity. Second, see that Jesus prayed for unity. We're going to be going to the passage that was read for us just a moment ago in a few minutes, but... I want us to just give some essential context before we get to verse 20 and on. After praying for himself, he prays for his disciples. He prays, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given to me, that they may be one just as we are. In verse 11, Jesus was going to leave the world, but his 12 apostles would still be in the world. So after noting this, the first thing he prays is for them to be one. And though Judas fell away, as was prophesied, the other 11 remained unified. Those 11 stuck together. Jesus prayed that that would be the case. Unity was that important to him. It still is. We know this to be true because after praying for his apostles to be one, he prays a similar prayer for us. Now let's look in verse 20 through 23. I do not ask on behalf of these only, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And I have given them the glory you have given me, that they may be one just as we are one, I am in them and you are in me, that they may be made perfect into one, that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you love me. Jesus cared so much about unity that he prayed that future believers, including us, would have it. Unity is possible, and the goal is to have unity akin to the Father and the Son. I cannot fully explain that. But what I can tell you is that the Father and the Son's unity is indeed exemplary. We remember Jesus saying in John 10 and verse 30 that I and the Father are one. Wording so powerful that the Jews were ready to stone him. This gives us something to think about, even if we do not completely know how to mirror that kind of unity as present in the Godhead. Know this, however, the unity for which Jesus prayed... Is based on the apostles word look back in verse 20 for a moment those who will believe in me through their word the text specifies through their word we are to be one and as a matter of fact we are to be made perfect into one that's a difficult phrase to figure out just one single way to translate but the point is still clear this is a unity that shouldn't be shaken The goal is not a fragile union, but a strong unity, a unity that cannot be torn down. The goal is a unity not based on my word or yours. I think we need to remember sometimes that Christianity is not a roundtable discussion. The church of Christ should be unified based on Jesus and the apostles' word. That is not a naive wish. I read of the early church doing it, and when they were not, they were instructed to do so. If they could do it, then so can we. After all, it's what Jesus prayed for. Lastly, understand that Jesus died for unity. Jesus died for unity. He did not die for people to be divided by man-made doctrines and creeds. He died so that everyone could be together in one place. And that place is his church, his kingdom. In Matthew 16 and verse 18, Jesus said that he would build his church. There's only one, and it's owned by Jesus, and it's where all can be united in his fold. You look in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 through 23. We're going to be in the book of Ephesians for a little while here. Paul says that the Father subordinated everything under his, Jesus' feet, and gave him as the head over everything in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who completes everything in everything. Note that the body and the church refer to the same thing in this passage. And with that understanding in mind, look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. But now in Christ Jesus, you all who were formerly far away became near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, he who made both one and destroyed the dividing wall of partition and enmity in his body. He invalidated the law of commandments in ordinances, that in him the two may be made into one new man, making peace. And both may be reconciled to God in one body through the cross killing the enmity by it. There's a great deal to point out here. First of all, note that those apart from Christ, the Gentiles, were brought near to God by the blood of Christ. In verse 13, in other words, this was made possible by Jesus' death. Christ himself is our peace having invalidated the old law and brought the new, in verse 15, they are all able to be reconciled in his body as we've already established from earlier in this book, that body is the church and that is where true reconciliation and true unity are. Yet that body is not without structure. There are things that this group, New Testament Christians, are supposed to believe. I wrote up here Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. We're actually going to start from verse 1 here. And in that passage, Paul names behaviors and beliefs that should be characteristic of the church. And here's how that text reads, starting in verse 1. I, a prisoner of the Lord, therefore urge you all to walk in a manner worthy of the call to which you were called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love striving to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father above all, who is over all and through all and in all. Note that Paul first says that our behaviors matter. And that we must treat each other humbly, gently, patiently, and lovingly. But he does then go on to say that our beliefs matter. We are to be striving to maintain the unity of the spirit in verse 3. Showing that this unity already exists in the church. That's what we just talked about from Ephesians chapter 2 verses 13 through 16 after all. The unity already exists but we have to do our best to keep it there. In verses 4 through 6, Paul then lists some of the central beliefs that Christians must have. The unity of the Spirit is maintained by adherence to these beliefs and others that make up the one faith that we have. And just to go through them once more, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father above all. There's so much more than even just this. And if if we deny that fact, then the New Testament, we are confused as to why the rest of it was written. But this is the central basis. This is the foundation upon which any faithful congregation must be built. I want you to remember that Jesus died for the church of his intent. What I mean is that he did not die for churches that teach a different plan of salvation. He did not die for churches that offer unacceptable worship to him. He did not die for churches that deny his authority. He died for all people, but remember that he is the cause of eternal salvation for all who obey him, Hebrews five and verse nine. In other words, a person who does not obey Christ will not receive his eternal salvation. A church composed of individuals who have not obeyed Christ are not churches for which Christ died. I do not say this to attack, and I certainly do not mean to be unkind. However, we must take these matters more seriously. We do not have the right to adulterate or change what Jesus designed. We have no right to preach that a prayer saves and repentance and baptism do, per Acts 2.38. We have no right to withhold good from others when we are told to do good for all, Galatians 6 and verse 10. We have no right to introduce any modern innovation, including the instrument, into our worship where Jesus never instructed it. When we see unauthorized changes enter our congregations, we ought to be saddened and angered by that. Why am I just... Overreacting? No, it's because our Savior did not die for a cheap knockoff. He died for the real thing. Jesus shed his blood so that we would humbly obey his will, not arrogantly sidestep it. Note what Paul tells the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 and verse 28 care for yourselves and all of the flock among which the Holy Spirit made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The whole purpose of God or the whole counsel of God that Paul had preached, looking back in verse 27, was supposed to be adhered to. And these elders were to care for the church that Christ bled and died for. He died for this church and no other. Please just thoughtfully consider that. Jesus taught, prayed, and died for unity. Because of that, he's the only one who can rightfully define what true unity is. Some do say that unity is just about loving Jesus. I'm sympathetic to that. Many in this world love Jesus. However, to truly love Jesus, you must agree with his teachings. How can we love Jesus if we don't agree with him? I want to just bring one more passage to your attention. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? And then will I plainly say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. That passage is sobering, or at the very least, it should be. Salvation, according to verse 21, is not just about knowing that Jesus is Lord. Salvation, according to verse 22, is not just about doing good things to try and glorify God. The key is in verse 21. The one who will enter into the kingdom of heaven is he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Those are Jesus' words. And per those words, obedience is simply the only way to salvation neither knowledge nor work will do you any good if you failed to simply obey. The unity Jesus desires demands our submission to his plan. We must be saved in the way he said to be saved, through repentance and baptism. We must be added to the church where the saved are. That church must follow Jesus' words as delivered through the apostles. That church must love and care about each other as they seek to honor God. All those things you can find in Acts Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and onward. The unity Jesus desires is simple. And as we've discussed today, it's a unity that he taught, prayed, and died for. I'm not sure what your needs are tonight. It's very possible that you're hearing all of this and you're realizing that you need to repent and be baptized yourself that you have not fully submitted to that plan, that you need to be added to the Lord's church and be brought from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. It's also possible that maybe you've known that path but have fallen away from it and need to be restored. And it could be that you just need the prayers of your brethren. Whatever your need is, we pray you would come at this time as together we stand and sing.